That's the sound of a convoy of ambulances arriving at the scene of the Manchester Arena attack. I took that video, and I watched on that night as victims emerged from the entrance, blooded and bruised, and as police tried to get to grips with the scene that was unfolding in front of them. Today, the latest report from that inquiry into the attack details a catalogue of failings and mistakes that night, and how at least two of the victims could, should, have been saved. This is the Manchester Weekly, from the mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. I'm Daryl Morris with Yoshi Herman, the editor of the Mill. Yoshi, hi. Hi. Uh, we'll, we'll digest some difficult news this week. The latest release from the Manchester Arena attack inquiry today. Jack Dulhanty has been following that over the course of the day. He's been reading this uh, huge 1,000, I think it's a 1,000 page document, wasn't it? That has, has outlined some of the failings. Uh, of the response that night. We'll get into the detail shortly. Also intrinsically linked to that, better news for Greater Manchester Police this week. They've been removed from special measures. We'll find out why. Firstly, Yoshi, before we get to that, some news about the mill as well, because you've hit um, a significant milestone since we last recorded a podcast, haven't you? Yeah, announced it um, in, in an editor's note over the weekend. We finally got to 1,500 paying members, uh, which is something we've been trying to do for feels like ages. And... I think that was cool, obviously, because like every big master, you're always trying to like, you know, get to the next big number. The other big thing was it, it, I realized recently that when we hit that number with our current staffing on the mill, we'd basically be breaking even that month, you know, be the first month where we're, where we're generating cash, admittedly not much, but generating rather than losing. And I think that was pretty big. Like, I actually didn't realize how much people would care about it. Like when I wrote about it on the weekend, I thought, you know, it's a cool thing for us. And obviously it's a good thing for my bank balance. Um, But it's not necessarily like, I don't know, I didn't think it would be a moving piece of news, but actually I was amazed by the response on Sunday. Like I had dozens and dozens of tweets from members saying how proud they were of the mill for reaching that point and had 50 new members join which is interesting, like people thinking, I think is maybe a part of a thing of like, okay, well, the mill really is here to stay now. We might as well ju- jump on board. Or It was a really, really big moment for us. And I think also nice because we've always said we're trying to find a model that can fund very, very high quality journalism in Manchester on a sustainable basis, not relying on grants, not relying on one-off advertising deals, but like re- recurring revenue from readers paying our bills. And then, and, and, you know, getting there is big. It, it, obviously, we're a tiny team and there's loads more growing to do, but that was, it was definitely a good one for us. Good. Those bandwagon jumpers who've come on after <laughs> the milestone has been hit. <laughs> They're pure profit, those, uh, those subscribers. But I, I, I would have to say, though, because we were talking about this the other day, Daryl, just me and you on the phone, but obviously this podcast yet doesn't have a sort of revenue stream. We don't have ads on it. It's not quite big enough for that yet. And I think, you know, I think the more podcast listeners who can who can join the mail and, and, and who can write in an email saying, hey, I, I came in via the podcast. I think the more confidence that would give us, you know, with the podcast itself, wouldn't it? Because that's, it's almost like the podcast is a sort of startup on its own, isn't it? Like it's almost a little mm. organization in its own right. And we're trying to work out how to get this to, to pick up and stuff. So the, the massive things you could do for us would be to tell a few friends about us and, and, and share a link to, to the podcast with a few friends and to join up the mill and, and, and write in to say that you came via the podcast. That would help us a lot. Definitely, yes. We, we very much like hearing from you and, and finding out who you are as well, more than anything else. So. Yeah, and, and we actually did find out a bit more from this recent survey, didn't we? Did a survey... 
uh, listeners filled it out. And it's really nice, actually. One big takeaway I had is that the, the podcast uh, audience listenership is much younger than the, than the email. Mm. So you've got a lot of people who in their 20s and 30s, even younger teens, uh, listening, which is really cool. It shows our, our journalism is reaching like a different audience. So thanks so much for, for all of you guys like joining on. Mm. But also, it's just nice to read the comments. One person said it, it's like an audio local paper when, when local journalism was still properly funded. People said it's like a really high value to them. One person said it's like high quality, high quality reporting and like really in depth. I really like it. So, yeah, it was just it was really nice to to find um, to find out who our listeners are. So, hi, listeners. Thanks absolutely, absolutely. Yes, we're very we're very pleased you're here. Actually, uh, it helps us kind of helps us uh, keep getting here every week doesn't it yoshi and uh, and and keep doing this so we're very very grateful for you being here and that does help us and it helps the yoshi really more than anything and the mill do really important journalism like today pouring over what will be a very significant document in the history of greater manchester i think the latest round of findings from the uh, manchester arena attack inquiry they've been published earlier on this afternoon it's detailed a catalogue of failings and mistakes by emergency services in the aftermath of that attack. Uh, Yoshi, I know that you and Jack in the newsroom have been pouring over the detail on this one, haven't you? Yeah, so Jack went in um, with all the other journalists, I think there were about 20, to start reading this report at 8am this morning. The, the way these things normally work is the journalist gets to read for, for a few hours or sometimes longer. And, you know, so that they have time to write their stories before the embargo. So the, the embargo has... Literally just lifted. We, we're recording this on on Thursday, unusually, and the, and the embargo has lifted. Um, and Jack's actually just come back to the office from from doing all that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab him now and see if he can sit down next to me and, and just give us a you know a, a bit of a, a brief idea of what's in it. And then and if people want to read more, he, he's doing a more detailed piece for the for the mill. Hi, Dar, you're right. Yeah, well, Jack, you've been um, you've been pouring over the details, haven't you, of this report today? Um, I mean, I mean, we'll get onto the headline points in a moment. How how easy or difficult is that to read? It can be really difficult to read in parts. I think John Saunders, the chair of the inquiry and author of this report, makes a specific point that there's not huge amounts of use of delving too deeply into those sort of eyewitness accounts and injury detail and stuff like that. So why you you know that stuff's difficult to read generally because you know what it means and you have to deal with that but I mean it was difficult because it was just I think anyone who's been reading the reports that have come out since the embargo lift it's just uh, frustrating in in parts to see the way that there were so many opportunities to do a little bit better and the journalists that I was with were saying this it's a very difficult thing to encapsulate because it's so many little things all coming together to build this bigger picture mm. um okay well take, so yeah that's take, one of the tough things okay take take us into those little things then then jack uh, just give us a bit of an outline of what this inquiry report has pointed to today yeah well i mean the the crux of the report is that there was almost i think to quote him a non-existence of multi-agency response as it's called but what he really means is that there was no people talking to each other across departments so from police to ambulance to fire to that kind of thing to communicate effectively so that they could all sort of coordinate a more effective response and that's essentially the the crux of it 
the reason why it's frustrating is because the the protocol itself is called the Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Principles, which is quite a mouthful, but it's called Jessup, and it was actually put in place after the seven seven attacks to say this is the sort of thing that needs to be done in you know with incidences like this and then what Saunders has found that in the case of the arena attack it all but failed it, it didn't come together at all for again a load of little reasons it's personal stresses and you know the these hierarchical issues that you sometimes find in organizations where someone might not want to admit that they don't understand what something is in one example one superintendent in GMP was handed over responsibility of the on-the-ground unarmed police officers, and he was told that it was an Operation Plato, which was basically counter-terrorism speak for a marauding terrorist attack. It was at the point when they still thought that the terrorist had a gun or was it was similar to the Paris attacks in 2015. And this superintendent didn't know what an Operation Plato was, but didn't admit to not knowing what an Operation Plato was and stayed in that position, not quite knowing what they were managing or what they were planning for, for over an hour, during which time so many things could have been done. That's the, the frustrating parts, I think, personally reading it, but also those are the, the key failings as well. And I think we also heard, uh, and have heard in previous incarnations of this of this uh, inquiry as well, about the ambulance service and the ambulance service not getting access to the foyer in the numbers and at the speed that they needed to. Yeah, I mean, it was three paramedics in total went into the the city room after 44 minutes. And that, again, links in with a few different things. Again, it's it's not worth getting too in the weeds because you'll end up talking for, for ages. But it wasn't properly communicated by the police that the city room was safe to enter. So they still thought it was in terms of Operation Plato again, this counterterrorism or this emergency protocol plan. They still thought that it was a hot area, so an inner cordon area where you would need specialist um, people to operate inside when that wasn't the case. Anyone could have gone in, any paramedic could have gone in, but they were being stopped. Or from the understanding of the people who were controlling NWAS at the time, they were like, well, no, because the police have said that we don't know that that's a safe place to send people yet. So they were being unduly cautious, basically. Right, I see. And I, I guess the bit that's that's the hardest to, to kind of process, Jack, and to untangle is how that lack of communication, how the paramedics not being able to get where they needed to be, how the police being overwhelmed on the night led to deaths. And this inquiry points to several victims of the attack that could have and probably should have survived. Yeah, well, 20 of the 22 victims had, there's no generous way of putting it, unsurvivable injuries. So there was no nothing that could have been done for them. But two, which were John Atkinson and Safi Rose, who was the youngest, there was a sort of question mark over them, and this report delved into what could have been done. And it found that, essentially, in Safi's case, there wasn't adequate evidence to say that she wouldn't have survived if she had had the absolute optimal care. But with John, there are it's slightly different, as in the failings probably did contribute to his death. The fact that people weren't there soon enough to tourniquet his wounds and stem bleeding in time, because... Again, it's getting you were getting to in the weeds with how hmm. his how he came to die. But essentially, had paramedics been allowed to enter that room sooner, he almost certainly would have survived. Yeah. 
Um, and we've heard some pretty harrowing testimony as well, haven't we, from uh, from Roland Blake, who was on the scene that night and tried to save John Atkinson, and and he pointed to how he felt John Atkinson was savable, but that the, the the support just never arrived. Um, we've also heard from John Atkinson's family as well today. They've issued a statement in the last hour, saying that John was our son, brother, uncle, and friend. Everybody who knew him loved being around him. Uh, he always put others first. As today's report says, his working life was spent helping those in care and his kindness and generosity were evident for all to see. He lit up our lives and there is less laughter in the world without him. They go on to detail their response to John having been, as they see it and as this report sees it, failed by the emergency services that night. They say, it is now clear beyond any doubt that on that night of the, of the bombing, John was totally failed at every stage, both by the private medical providers at the arena and the emergency services. They say that the apology from Northwest Ambulance Service means nothing unless they act rapidly on the report to ensure that no family ever has to go through this horrific experience again. They say, as we know from witnesses, John kept asking if he was going to die. John must have known that he was dying, and the pain that causes us is too great to put into words. This should simply never have been allowed to happen. So that's the other part of, of, of today's story, isn't it, Jack, is that we, we're getting a real insight into the real-life human consequences of the failings that this report points to. Yeah, 100%. And again, I think with the reports, it's quite easy to suddenly feel, because these are such big bird's-eye views of these situations and the kind of nitty-gritty of the way certain operations and certain... That term alone, interoperability, is so inhuman, isn't it? So uh, you do kind of forget the, the very tragic effects that these small failings sort of built up into. Okay, Jack, thank you for that. Uh, you can read Jack's insights into that inquiry report on the mill. Get that into your email inbox. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe. Yoshi, related to that, there was a BBC investigation that's been released this week that detailed how so-called disaster trolls and conspiracy theorists have targeted some of the victims of the, the attack on the arena. Yeah, so these are people, I mean, it's quite kind of unbelievable almost that these people exist, who target victims in the aftermath of, you know, terrorist attacks and stuff like that, denying that the, the deaths have actually happened or, or that the, the events, had, you know, had, had even occurred, accusing victims and their families of lying about their injuries or, or, or deaths or within the family. It's the kind of thing you read about in America. You read about with people like Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist in America, but it's, it's kind of really shocking to read about it here. They had interviews with, you know, people who effectively make a living claiming that things like the arena attack didn't happen and that there were hoaxes and, and, and making videos about all that kind of thing. So, yeah, just kind of an astonishing um, investigation, that. It is. And, and you're right to point to Alex Jones. He's kind of developed the blueprint for this, hasn't he, for, for, for the conspiracy industry generally. I do quite a lot of work around this. We cover this quite a lot in, in on my other radio shows. And um, and it's quite interesting, this, because up to now, when you, when you cover stories like this about Alex Jones and famously his misinformation around the Sandy Hook massacre, the families of which sued him recently and won a massive liable case in, in, in America. You cover those stories and they're very abstract, aren't they? You know, they're sort of very much happening in America. What's been really fascinating this last couple of days is getting ever so slightly lost down a rabbit hole of these conspiracy theories and trawling through the websites. One, one person in particular, Richard Hall, uh, who is the subject of the uh, BBC investigation here, um, who's sort of one of the main architects of, this, of, this, uh, of these kind of conspiracy theories around the Manchester Arena bomb. But having, as I've mentioned already, having sort of witnessed it and, and been there on the night and, and seen it, 
watching somebody devise and deliver a conspiracy theory around something that you know yourself with your own eyes to her but i'm not a government stooge you know i'm not a crisis actor i i'm not a victim either but i was i was witness to this thing it's quite hard to to put into words really it, it it's kind of it feels quite violating actually in a really odd way clearly nowhere near as much as the those people who lost lives or had been injured or had been in the foyer that night but in a way it kind of violates us all you know having having all sort of experienced it as as a city really in a, in a way it's it's quite fascinating and his motivation is quite fascinating too would really recommend that uh, documentary if you haven't seen it that investigation really worth checking out there's a bbc radio 4 series and a bbc panorama series as well okay yoshi elsewhere let's move on to a story that's actually again is intrinsically linked greater manchester police this week has been lifted out of special measures haven't they after being categorized as such since 2020 how big a deal is this, Yoshi, that Greater Manchester Police has been in special measures? Well, it was a big deal that Greater Manchester Police was put into this phase, which is known as the engage phase. Because what it means is that a police force is not only failing, but it's failing to engage with um, the inspectorate, the watchdog, about what it's doing wrong. So, so the quote is, you know, the standard for this engage phase is not responding to a cause of concern or if it is not succeeding in managing, mitigating or eradicating the cause of concern. So it's kind of really about almost like negligently not fixing problems that have been flagged. So it was a big deal when it went in there, GMP went into this category and there has clearly been a big change in the numbers for GMP. So you'll remember that the big issue was tens of thousands of crimes were not being properly recorded. The new Chief Constable Stephen Watson's come in and for whatever reason, and I think you know a bit more reporting probably is required to understand exactly what's happened, but you've got a big increase in, in investigations resulting in charges, which is up 42% to 23,500. And then you've also got a huge increase, four-fold increase in stop and searches with, what's, what is it, 2,528 stops in September resulting in an arrest. So clearly Watson has come in from South Yorkshire Police. He's kind of known as this turnaround merchant who, who can turn around failing forces, and he's clearly had you know an interesting impact. And th- there's quite a lot made, isn't there, of his anti-work credentials. He was kind of, this portrait of him was built in certain sections of the media, wasn't there, as being an anti-work police officer. What does that actually mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know exactly what it means. I definitely think he's tried to portray himself as extremely old-fashioned and no-nonsense. And I think one particular interview he gave to The Telegraph, where he talked about, you know, the, the impartiality of police being undermined if they, for example, take the knee at protests or they um, wear rainbow, you know, shoelaces and, and, and get photographed. He's saying that kind of undermines impartiality. And that's obviously music to the ears of like a newspaper site, the, the Telegraph and the Mail. You noticed this weekend that the Telegraph's headline was anti-woke chief constable turns failing force around with back to basics approach. You know, I don't know. I've, I've never spoken to Watson and I think we, we, we probably should do. I don't really know if this portrait painted of him is like is, is bang on the money or if it's just a couple of lines that he said in an interview. He's clearly courting those newspapers when he, he, he makes remarks like that. But ultimately it kind of doesn't matter. Like like his views on cultural issues or his positioning to the to the Daily Telegraph is much, much less relevant than 
is he competent and can he make GMP competent? And the thing about GMP is that it's just been letting a lot of people down and his job is to turn that around. Can I ask you, do you, do you see, sort of objectively, any genuine link between him sort of taking this approach that rejects the idea of the police, you know, getting involved in things like, I mean, you know, you could, there's been lots of conversation, hasn't it, about pride parades and uh, rainbow laces and, uh, and obviously taking the knee is perhaps a slightly separate issue. Those big culture war issues, as you say, those big hot touch points. Do you see any correlation between, you know, any anything anything to do with that and what's happened in Greater Manchester Police here that's clearly turned things around? I can't see the link. I, I can't really see the link. It's not like the issues at GMP were caused by certain, you know, communities not wanting to work with GMP because there'd been a story on Twitter or in the Daily Mail about how they'd been wearing rainbow laces or taking it. That's not what was the problem was. The problem was that in a couple of key areas, the GMP was just drowning in incompetence. The culture was terrible, clearly. The leadership was poor. They couldn't get this new computer system implemented, which has called loads and loads and loads of problems. And they had tens of thousands of crimes that weren't getting recorded. So I think leadership was probably the biggest issue. I don't think it had anything to do with the, these kind of slightly um, culture war uh, talk, talking points. And... Um, if that was the only bit he was fixing, I don't think he'd be making any progress. But he does seem to be making progress in terms of getting more investigations going and taking each crime more seriously. And I think the the idea of the police is to serve the public, right? The idea of the police is to make people feel like if there's a problem in their life in terms of criminality, they can get help. And I think, um, and they can get justice. And if if he fixes that bit, then people will be grateful, and I don't. And I, I think the, the the other stuff is probably a bit of a sideshow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on that story because the devil's in the detail, and those numbers are worth keeping an eye on. And we will do that for you. We'll return to it uh, as and when we get more updates on it. Um, let's talk about something a little bit lighter and in in better news. Yoshi, the new Greater Manchester Ringway, which looks incredibly exciting. You've been following this very very closely. What is the Greater Manchester Ringway? You say I've been following it closely. I actually just got an email about it, thought people are going to love this, put it out on Twitter. I haven't spoken to anyone about it, actually. I know nothing about it. I thought, it you'd, I thought new... you'd walked it already. I thought you'd, I thought you'd <laughs> got out there and done some intrepid journalism and some research and walked it. There's only one bit of the Greater Manchester environment that I walk in, and that's the uh, that's Saddleworth Moor and all the, all, the, all the moors and stuff up there. So I haven't done the ringway, but it is a long-distance walking trail designed around existing footpaths and parks and open-access land. And effectively, there are 20 stages of this 186-mile route. And they're all, crucially, designed to be accessed by public transport because the idea is should be people who live in this city shouldn't have to get in a car to go out into the countryside. They should be able to get a train... Or, or a bus and get straight onto really good trails and it's been it's lottery funding that's allowing them to kind of link up this route and turn it into a proper ring i noted from the press release there it passes more than 40 grade one and grade two listed buildings it's got 14 scheduled ancient monuments including blackstone edge uh, roman road in rochdale along it so yeah sounds great i'm, I'm go- I'll, I'll do it maybe not in one day or whatever what's that 186 miles oh, okay so that would take a while how long would that take <laughs> yeah a long time <laughs> so, okay. walk so, it, I, yeah. but there will be someone won't it, that, who does it in one continuous yeah yeah continuous go i don't know 186 miles uh that's that does you, could do, like you could do it you could you could do it you'd have to you'd probably you'd have to stop you'd have to probably have like a you have to have a tent or something and, and probably camp the night but, yeah um, 
but you yeah. could uh, you could give it a go. I, I suggest. Yeah. I, could, I feel the charity challenge coming on uh, for you. Yoshi. Yeah, people loved it. Actually, we got uh, like 150 retweets and like 600 likes on our tweet about it. So clearly, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Nice. Okay, let's just quickly return to this story about Night and Day as well. Uh, we've been following this the last couple of weeks. Uh, the, the Night and Day Cafe in the centre of Manchester, subject to a noise order. This this con this sort of ongoing standoff between these established culture venues and residents, new residents in the city centre that we've talked so much about. What's the latest on this? Well, the council says it's received five complaints from four separate properties regarding um, noise um, from night and day. Um, the owner is taking the council to court to appeal against this order. Um, loads of people have signed a petition about it. I think it was like almost 90,000 people have signed a petition um, to lift the order and to, you know, and, and, and to allow this venue to carry on doing what it's already done. It's interesting, though, like I think Helen Pidd had a good interview in the in the Guardian with Jennifer Smithston, the owner. And Helen raised the question, like, you know, on Twitter, what does this tell us about, like, urban life and a sort of the debate about noise versus the ability to get a night's sleep, people living in city centres versus people partying? And I, it's just been interesting to watch that debate play out a, a little bit. You had the former council leader in Manchester, Sir Richard Lees. He's, he tweeted, people who don't like noise shouldn't live in a city centre. I mean, he lives in Crumpsall, so uh, he doesn't need to worry about all this sort of thing. Um, but then I noticed one of our members, a guy called Nigel uh, Sarbutz, he replied, which is a view I haven't seen expressed that, that much, is he replied, this stupid attitude explains why Manchester has become boring hen party city. Interesting cities have families, communities of young and old living together. So that's kind of making the case for actually, like, there do need to be limits around sound or whatever. I'm, I live in the city centre. I'm fortunately don't have a window that looks out onto like a busy street or whatever. I'm a big, big proponent for places being open later, um, for noise being less of a, a concern of the council. I, when you move from somewhere like New York, where I lived before, to, to, to the UK, London or here, you just notice things close really early here compared to America. And I think it's because of these local regulations. And I, I know that people move into the city centre and then they, you know, they expect a certain quality of life. But I, I, I think I'm on the Richard Lee's side of this or, or the side that most people are taking, which is, come on, not only should we not be, you know, putting um, noise orders on places like this, we should actually be extending our licensing hours, loosening restrictions because... You want a, um, a vibrant nightlife, and, and Manchester's like a, an absolute mecca for it. Like, people come here, it's not just for Hindus, it's for like, you know, for lots of different types of nights out, nothing wrong with Hindus as well. So, um, yeah, I'd, 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 be pushing, I'd be pushing pretty hard to, to loosen restrictions rather than have the council getting involved. Why is the council getting involved in stuff like this? Mm -hmm. I, it's a, it's a very, I think it's a UK thing that you'll constantly have the council getting involved in this much noise or that much noise. Come on, you're living in the city centre. Um, put up with it. Also, my, my girlfriend's from Blackpool and you don't know a hen party city until you've spent a weekend in Blackpool, my <laughs> friend, my word. The amount of inflatable willies that I've seen <laughs> over the over the years. Um, okay, interesting point though from Nigel and, and actually I had, you don't hear that that point made very often, do you? So it is it is an interesting perspective, um, an interesting comment from Nigel. And uh, finally for this week, Yoshi, I have just glanced at our notes and surprise, surprise, there is a section here titled Piccadilly Gardens. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> What's this, Yoshi? What are we up to? Well, you know, regular listeners will know that we've got a bit of a thing about this, um, the use of Piccadilly Gardens and why this public space has been covered up by this sort of mostly closed, usually closed commercial thing, you know. And recently I've been asking the council, I mean, I've been asking the council about this since I think April or something. We've been talking about it for ages, but it really, really like gets to me that 
the democratically elected council can just like do a big thing like this, like cover a big chunk of a, a public space and then and then say, oh, we don't know who made the decision or we can't tell you who made the decision. So I said, like, who made the decision? And they, they just refused to say, like, oh, it's a variety of people. So I said, how much money have you made from it so far? It's been there for a year now. A year this thing's been there. How much money have you made from it? Effectively zero. We're going to make a chunk of the profits, but like that'll be when it comes to an end. Okay, so when is it coming to an end? Oh, we don't know. It's indefinite. It's a, it's a temporary thing, apparently. So I said, do you need planning permission for it? You know, if, 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 it's gonna, if this is indefinite change of use structure. No, no, it's a, it's a temporary thing. But we don't know when the temporary thing's going to end. So I don't know. The whole thing just, to be honest, what it tells me is that the council is a little bit arrogant and it's a little bit entitled and it's a little bit used to not having enough scrutiny and that actually it doesn't like answering questions from our readers via the mail. It doesn't like... Um, having to clarify why it made certain decisions, and you know, I think I think that cu- culture is needs to be challenged. And I think is it's good that people like the Mill, but also our readers, are saying actually no, fine, that's how Manchester City Council has operated for the past twenty years. But now we want a different thing, and if we don't get a different thing, we're gonna we're, we're gonna you know punish our um, our councillors in the next election. I think that's I think that's a great thing. Okay, yeah. Fair play. I I'll I'll give you that one, Yoshi. I'll give you that one fair enough. <laughs> More of that brilliant journalism in the mill. Manchestermill.co.uk uh, constantly keeping an eye on those decisions. Um okay, before we go, Yoshi, we'll give you some nods uh, for things to do across the weekend in a sec. But what else is going on in your newsroom? Take us in there, my friend. What are you working on? Well, we're working on a great uh, weekend read by Molly about um, about spikings um, in the Northern Quarter, and actually, no, spikings across Greater Manchester. It, it, it started with a story in the Northern Quarter, and now it's um, uh, victims of spikings, and, and, and obviously the sexual assault that can can often follow from that. And I actually think we can get um, a little voice note in now here from Molly. Let's hear from Molly about the story that's coming out this weekend. For the past few months, I've been speaking to women in Greater Manchester who were spiked when they were nights out in the city centre. It started with a conversation with a girl named Laura, whose name has been changed. She was spiked when she was on her first date. After she told me her story, I realised there were a lot of things that made her story really difficult to stand up, but that didn't make it less important. It made me realise it's worth investigating why spiking cases are so difficult and whether this has been a weakness for Greater Manchester Police and whether they're securing good outcomes for victims. What we found was that, although it's a huge priority for the police at the moment, it's actually been a huge weakness for the force. And you'll find more details of that on The Mill this weekend. So that was Molly talking about this weekend's read. I hope everyone will, will read that and, 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 and hopefully we can do more work on that and you can get in touch with Molly if you've got any views or if you've got any experiences you want to tell her about. She's molly at manchestermail.co.uk. The other thing uh, this week is we've got a new uh, member of the team who's just here for a couple of months, Rafi, who's uh, our commercial intern, our, our growth intern. Um, he's uh, helping us out, grow our revenues a bit, get more subscribers, get a few sponsors, um, that kind of thing. So you might hear us talking about him and and yeah it's been cool to have another person in the office excellent good stuff and um should we give some recommendations uh for the weekend ahead what's uh, what's going on what you're looking forward to well what i'm looking forward to is um homo block which is like a big party that people have told me about in the past i'm going with a few mates which is on saturday 
Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. I think it's uh, I think it's in Mayfields. That sort of certainly that neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'll be doing. And fortunately, because I'm doing that, I've avoided helping Sophie with her home move. She's moving house. She's moving house, and um, delighted to have a great excuse not to have done loads of heavy lifting in her in her in her new house. Well so, yeah, done. Hats off to you. Another benefit. <laughs> Very good. Um, I went to see the Shawshank Redemption this week uh, at the Lowry, and uh, I wasn't really sure how well it was going to translate onto stage. I didn't like the film, like everybody else. Yeah, a classic, all time classic. And it's had quite a good run, quite a good sort of tour uh, over the years, the Shawshank Redemption. Um, I thought it was okay. It was a bit clunky in parts, and they, they had a couple of sound problems they had to battle through on the night. It won't blow you away, but it's still on the Lowry for the weekend. It ends on Saturday night, so uh, you've got to get in in the next couple of days or so if you want to see it. But, you know, solid enough evening out if you're at a bit of a loose end. Um, also this weekend is the Manchester Art Fair. Um, at Manchester Central, uh, some highlights include Stanley Chow, who you can read a profile of. Jack went to meet him for the mill and a couple of others as well. So if that's your bag, that's on all weekend at Manchester Central and you get some tickets at manchesterartfair.co.uk. Okay, that's it from us for this week. Don't forget to head over to the mill to read Jack's insights into the Manchester Arena Attack Inquiry, the latest release of that available at manchestermill.co.uk. That's where you go to subscribe for that and more quality journalism. We're back in your podcast feed, same time next week. So for now, Yoshi, thank you. Thanks very much.